been thinking a lot about um, symbols, um, thinking a lot about the cross as we've kind of been wrestling with what the cross represents and what a symbol is. Symbols uh, really run a lot of what we do. Um, culturally, we see the, the Nike swoosh, right? How many of you guys have ever owned a pair of Nikes? Yeah. So you just see a pair of Nikes and there's, there's something about the swoosh that represents uh, something. As far as political uh, status goes, there's flags that represent each individual country. It's a symbol, it's a way of uh, the people being able to connect with uh, something that the country stands for. Also culturally, when I was growing up, a big symbol was the Ghostbuster symbol. You guys remember that? Yeah. I mean, you just saw that thing and, you know, you know, just like, it just wanted to get in the groove, you know. Symbols are so powerful because they represent something. And, and that, that was the question I've been wrestling with this week is, why are symbols so so powerful? Like, what is it about a symbol that breathes life? And so I was thinking about all these things uh, culturally and in our political system. And more importantly, I was thinking about the cross. And you remember that last week we talked about the fact that this cross has become our symbol. And I asked you all, are we able to properly articulate why the cross is our symbol? And when I was thinking through why there is power in a symbol, the only answer that I could come to was that there's power in a symbol because of what the story is that the symbol represents. And so our entire journey from the beginning of the Gospel of Luke as it hits this climax at the cross, I hope that you would agree with me that it's been an amazing, eye-opening experience about what the true symbol of the cross represents. And tonight we're going to finish the picture in a way and then continue on in the weeks to come on what this symbol really is. So join with me tonight in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 23 as we continue to take steps forward in what it looks like to understand the cross of Christ. Amen? Are you guys with me? Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. I love this, uh, this passage in so many ways, and I'm not going to be able to share all of them now, but I will later. And, and just this is a very... This is a very personal passage for me tonight. My hope and prayer is that it becomes personal for you. Last week Jesus prayed one of the most amazing prayers ever prayed that later Stephen would pray in Acts chapter 7 when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And wasn't it brilliant? Because it's not the prayer of someone who's guilty, my friends. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do is the prayer of an innocent man of an innocent lamb who's being slain on behalf of sinful men. And it was a brilliant prayer and just understanding the picture of grace. And so that's where we left off. We're picking up in Luke chapter 23, verse 35. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God. The chosen one. There's so much irony through the crucifixion. Can't, can't we agree? And this is one of the major points of irony. Why? 
Because these, ruler, these rulers are saying, if you're the Christ, the chosen one, then you'll prove it by saving yourself. In other words, by pulling yourself off of the cross. If only they understood Luke chapter 19.10, when he said, I have come to seek and to save what was lost. And even more brilliantly, Matthew chapter 16, verse 25, an amazing passage where Matthew's uh, rendition of denying yourself, taking up your cross and follow me ends with, whoever wants to what? Save his life will what? Will lose it. And like he does often, (laughs) Jesus represents the word in the truest sense, amen, as he proves that you want me to, to, to come off the cross to save myself, but what you're not getting is, if I do that, then I don't save others. By losing my life, I will save other lives. And so it's this, this tremendous amount of irony here in, no, 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 you're, you're missing it. I have to stay on the cross because I came to seek and to save that which was lost. You and me, huh? Lost sheep who have gone astray. Scripture tells us that no one's righteous Not even one. At the end of that passage in Romans, it talks about that our eyes cannot see the fear of God. That none of us are righteous. So as we get into the text tonight, look, what a tremendous amount of joy at the crucifixion that Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. You remember the parable when He goes after, by His initiation, the lost sheep. And friends, when He goes after a lost sheep, when He goes after a lost sheep, He always finds it. Are you with me? He always finds it. He never comes back void. When He goes out looking, friends, He always finds what He's looking for. And so here on this cross, He looks down at these rulers who are sneering at Him. Just, you're missing it. You don't understand. It's the first time that we'll see in this series of Scriptures. The... uh, the asking of Christ to bring himself off the cross. I was thinking about something else though. How, uh, how dicey does it have to be when you decide to ridicule a man being executed? We've talked a lot about hatred. Is this not an amazing picture of hatred? Uh, put it in context for us. Someone is um, being electrocuted in the electric chair, okay? And a bunch of us show up, and outside the window where the the guy being killed can see, we're like holding up posters, you know, that that ridicule. We're we're bantering, we're shouting out things. It's inhumane, isn't it? Hatred. Friends, that hatred that we see so clearly in this passage is welled up in the depravity of your heart. And so isn't it amazing to see the reality of our depravity and here's the Passover lamb dying to seek and to save that which was lost. We are haters. And only by God's grace can we become lovers because God is love. The next verse we see in 36... The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar, which couldn't have been good whatsoever, and, and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. 
I find it interesting here, and, and the Greek confirms this, the, the soldiers came up. It's this phrase of action. Okay, so they're, so they're not just like sitting back in their Roman soldier lazy boys, like shooting arrows and darts at him. No, no, no. There's effort involved. They have to get up and come up to Christ to mock Him. And what do they say? If you are... Like, come on. Come on, King of the Jews. Every other gospel adds wine vinegar in, in a moment of, of compassion. But Luke doesn't. He puts it right in between ridicules showing that this wasn't an act of mercy by the soldiers. This was a way to, to continue to mock Him and say, come here, Jesus. Do you understand the taunt? Are you getting the picture? If there's anything that should infuriate you as a believer, it's this. We've been talking a lot about right emotion and right theology. And can I share with you a right emotion at this moment? The mocking of Jesus should pull at your heart so strong. Watching Christ, your King, being mocked should infuriate you. Should infuriate you. But it causes us to pause and ask this. Have you ever mocked? Have you ever been on the other side of this? Have you ever been the one sneering? Well, you're like, Mark, of course not. I mean, I'm not like these guys. I don't, I don't act like this. I don't do this, really. Have you ever stood ashamed in a circle where you could have made a stand for what was right, but instead, like a coward, unempowered by the Spirit of God, you sank in the back of the crowd? How do you think that's not mockery? The Gospel says over and over and over, stand firm then. Do not be moved. Christ is your example. Over and over and over here in our culture, God this in the wrong context. Jesus that in the wrong context. Have you ever taken the name of God, which oftentimes the Jews wouldn't even say because it had so much power, have you ever been on that other side saying that out of your mouth? It should infuriate you. When you begin to think about Christ and His tremendous grace and His amazing mercy and His everlasting faithfulness, the thought at ever mocking Him should grab your heart and cause each of us to fall on our face and say, Oh God, not me. May I never make a mockery of the Gospel. May I never make a mockery of Your name. May I never stand unashamed in a group of people when I could take a stand for the Gospel. Our response to the mockery of Christ should be repentance of our own sin and an acceptance of the empowerment of God to do elsewise. So is that, is that your response? Does it infuriate you? Does 
your sin make you tremble to the point of wanting to kill it. We see one more mockery in verse 38. Uh, Here later in verse 39, but in verse 38 first, there was a written notice above him. And I love the the in-between piece of this. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the King of the Jews. Now this is a a sign that... um, would have been spread with white gypsum and black lettering would have been written over it. And it was often hung, it was called a superscription, often hung from the neck of the executed or hung above his head as a means of showing what the charge was. This is one of those verses that it's easy to read over. This is the king of the Jews. We've heard this, we've heard this rhetoric, we've seen passages like this. And so we read it and we just move on. But if you just wait a moment and think about the implications and allow those implications to open your eyes, all of a sudden we renew again the depth of the Scripture. Aren't you grateful that the Scripture has more depth than any other book combined? Isn't that amazing? Look, we can read other books, okay? Many of you have. I don't know what kind of books you read, all right? But when you open a book, there's so many sentences that just have no meaning. How is it that every line in the Scriptures has this tremendous amount of depth? How is it that every line in the Bible just breathes life like God wrote it? Amen? And in this moment, we see this phrase, King of the Jews. Well, if you do a little bit of research, what you'll find is this phrase is never seen out of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, this phrase, King of the Jews, is never out of the Gospels. And there's only one time when it's outside the crucifixion story. It's all over. Right? Pilate's conversation with Jesus. Jesus here being ridiculed. Only one time in the, all the four Gospels where this is outside of the crucifixion story. And it's in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. And in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, the magi or the wise men, right? You remember when you were a kid, the three wise men and all the songs and all the rhetoric? Yeah. The wise men come up and they ask, where is this one who is called the king of the Jews? Now, if you pause for a moment at that moment and you're asking questions as you're studying and you're Googling and you're looking up Bible Gateway and all these things are coming to you, at some point you have to ask yourself, kingship and like Jewish culture, what's the, what's the implications here? What's the power? Well, if you know anything about Jewish history, you know that around Samuel time, the Jews start to get jealous of all these other lands who have a king. And God, at first, is like, what are you guys talking about? Like, aren't I your king? You know, and eventually they wrestle back and forth, and God doesn't give in. But as part of his plan to later reveal Jesus through that same lineage, he provides a king. And so if you just pause for a moment to understand the irony of this moment, God ends up providing the Jews a king, and then ends up, through that King David... Bringing Jesus out of that lineage like Matthew talks about. And so here in this moment, we see King Jesus with the title King of the Jews over his head. And the Jews who wanted a king don't see him as king. And he's not just the king of the Jews, he's the king of everything. Could you miss it anymore? You back in your lineage's history, we want a king, we want a king, we want to be like everyone else. 
Here's the Messiah, and their eyes are closed to it. May our eyes not be. May our eyes not be. May we just not see King of the Jews written, written above a beaten, bloody Jesus. May we see King of the world, of the universe of our life. Amen? This next verse, we see the final ridicule. Verse 39, one of the criminals who was hung there hurled insults at him. Which, you know, you reach a new point when you're a criminal dying, going through the same execution as Jesus, minus the sin of the world and the wrath of God being, being put on you, right? You're going through that same suffering and you have the audacity to hurl insult. What does he say? Look at this. He says this. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. <laughs> Which, uh, at the end of his phrase, the real motive comes out, right? So he's probably heard all these people. He's like, oh man, these people are saying like, you can, like, so all these people are saying save this and save that. Like somehow this, maybe this guy can do some type of saving. And so, okay, so Jesus, save yourself, get that out of the way, and then get me off the cross. Look, the first criminal could care less who it was. That's why he says, aren't you the Christ? He asks a question. Aren't you the Christ? And so he begins to hurl insults at him. Now this is brilliant, my friends. The third time in this passage where we see, save yourself, save yourself, save yourself. And as we were studying the Gospel of Luke, we saw three major events that were trying to deter Jesus from dying on the cross. The first was the temptation of Jesus in the desert. And you can say, well, how was that deterring from the cross? Look, Satan, and this was a new revelation for me going through the Gospels, Satan does not want Christ to go to the cross, okay? I used to articulate, and Satan thought he had won, Satan thought he'd kill him. No, Satan does not want Jesus on the cross. And so he tempts him. In the desert, with three different things, and ultimately, look, I can give you all this, and because Jesus had fasted and prayed, fought temptation with the Word of God. Next, we see one of his own, Peter, saying, look, Jesus, you don't have to go through all of this stuff. Surely you don't have to die. And you guys remember what Jesus told Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Words you never want to hear from Jesus to, to you, you know? Did he just call me Satan? You know, had to be a, right? Get behind me, Satan. The last, the Garden of Gethsemane. Where again, we see this final moment. Look, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. But your will be done. And here, three times, in the matter of a few moments, save yourself. Get yourself off the cross. Bring yourself down from there. Come on, Jesus. There's so many moments in the Scripture where I step back and I say, oh, to have that heart. And this is one of those. What I mean is, when I was uh, in college, I uh, was around a lot of alcohol all the time. And you guys, uh, for those of you guys who don't know my stance, 
First of all, the Matthias stance on alcohol, right, which automatically like perks all of you up. You're like, oh, he's going to, you know, it's going to stay what they believe. This is going to be great, you know. Um, we believe biblically that drunkenness is not permitted. However, alcohol clearly is. So if you want to test that line, it's between you and God. So we don't say, we don't preach abstinence here of alcohol. We say discern moments that if it could possibly cause people to stumble, abstain. But clearly, biblically, we would be making a rule that's not there if we said, no one drink. But I will say this, God will show each and every individual in here different things at different times. For me, it's been to abstain. And all of my friends knew this, trust me. So beginning in high school, the big joke was, we can get Mark to drink, you know? Like, we can do it, surely we can do it, like, you know, so it became this game. Look, there were times when they offered me 50 bucks to drink, all right? And sometimes that was on the low, like, here, Sigma, $50 bill right now, just throw this down, you know? And so over and over and over, I get to college, and there was one night where the entire party, I I later found this out, the entire party made its way to my dorm room, and the entire party's focus, it was even on the invitations, like, tonight is the night Sigma's going to drink, you know what I'm saying? This this is going to be awesome. Bring your camera and your snapshots, you know? Yeah. And over and over and over and over and over by the grace of God and the power of God, I just, I just never gave in. And I share that story to say, I wish that was the story of my life all the time. But it's not. And I look at Christ here, and I get so encouraged by the fact that with temptation all around him, he continues to follow the will of God. Can I remind you of someone else in the Old Testament? Joseph. You guys remember Joseph? Joseph was uh, basically the head of the household for this dude named Potiphar. Potiphar had an amazingly uh, beautiful wife, okay? And Scripture tells us that Potiphar uh, begins to come to Joseph and offer herself to him. And Scripture says day after day after day, Potiphar's wife would present herself to Joseph. Day after day after day. And in the end, Joseph ends up running from it and running away. And she snags his cloak. And then later that gets Joseph in trouble. But praise be to God because Joseph doesn't fall. And I look at that heart. And I look at the heart of Christ. And I say, oh, I wish that was my heart all the time. Friends, so many of you. Temptation comes. Gossip, judgment, lust, drunkenness. And you stay strong in your own power the first couple of times. But pretty soon, as temptation mounts and as it becomes relentless, eventually, because you're trying to rest in your own power, you give in. And you talk badly about that person. You fail in your relationship sexually. You don't treat and love your wife like God loved, like Christ loved the church. The first couple times in and of yourself, I can stay strong. I can stay strong. When will we start saying, no, we can't? We can't stay strong. He stood strong. And He provided a Holy Spirit... So much so that he said, I have to go so that the Spirit can come. You know the Spirit's powerful when he says that. 
If I don't go, the Spirit won't come. And you want the Spirit. So can this be a collective moment as a church where we sit back and say, we are weak, He is strong. And through the power of Christ, we too can fight the battle of temptation. And because Christ was victorious, we can be victorious. Amen? Why do we get so defeated? Why are we conquered by shame so easily? That's not the church that He came to establish. The church was to be victorious over sin. To struggle and wrestle with it and repent over it. And to watch God be the God of it. Friends, when will we collectively finally say, what an example of, 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 of a God-man following the will of God. Maybe I should learn from Jesus. There was another time when I was younger, 10 years old. My mom's here tonight. She'll remember this. I had a friend who I would go over to his house and he would say to me something like this, Mark, um, my dad has magazines of scantily clothed women. Why don't we check them out? I was 10. And I, dude, no way. Dude, no way. Every, every, I was there every day. It's like they're down in the basement. Every day. And finally, after like two months of this, and I used this as an excuse, alright, I'll just, I'll just give in so that this is a non-issue. So that we can just get past this. So I go down there and he begins to show me these magazines that his father had had. And my mom can contest to this. I left that house and I went down and I told my mom what had happened. And I was weeping and I couldn't sleep for a week because I was just so shameful. It doesn't provide what it promises it will. Like for me in my ten year old mind, it was like approval. Maybe this guy will see me in a better light. Maybe we'll be closer friends. And I walked out of that house and I hated it. I hated my sin. I hated what I saw. And my mom picked me up and I was of course in a lot of trouble and praise God that I had parents who looked at me and said, Mark, that is not of God. Friends, how many of you tonight, right now, have just been giving in to temptation because it just keeps hitting you? It's time right now to repent and say, God, will you empower me to have strength by your victory over this sin? And then when people come to us and they're struggling and they're wrestling, we get to say, no, not I didn't read a great self-help book, but rather I have an amazing king. And he grabs my heart daily and somehow I'm able to weave my way through this wretched, depraved world glorifying God in the good and in the bad. That's our testimony, amen? Now, there's something uh, also that I want you guys to see about this, about this criminal. He represents many of us and so does this other thief. Verse 40. But the other criminal rebuked him. Really quick, Matthew calls them robbers. So, so they, they're clearly being um, crucified for something that they've done. Uh, there's even a phrase that we can grab onto that even maybe included murder. But look, the Roman system, can I just, the Roman system was a just system, okay? It was a just system. We're like, yeah, right, okay? 
No, it was. They prided themselves on that. We even saw a little bit of that in Pontius Pilate. He's like, look, this man's innocent. Forget about it. Okay? Now, maybe it, it was just because they defined justice. But they prided themselves in being just. So these guys are justly getting what they, observe, uh, getting what they deserve. The criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. I mean, it's got to be one of the most beautiful pictures in the Scripture, isn't it? This man who has clearly lived a life of sin, sits there on the cross. And some people would say, well, clearly, uh, clearly, you know, he heard the people talking. He saw the sign, King of the Jews. That must have just done him over. So all of a sudden, he was able to look at Jesus and say, man, that guy must be God. On the cross, in the last moments of his life, we see a picture of His grace extending to a lost sheep. We see the initiation of God on the cross to do a saving work in this man's heart. And we see in this man the process of salvation. Here's what I want you to see. Many of you guys, you're all like, if I were to ask you your testimony, many of you guys would start out by saying, it's boring. I never did drugs. You know, I was never in the pen. I ex- went to church and I accepted Christ. Let's move onward. You know, you think it's to me, that's mockery. Are you we have the audacity to say at moments that our testimony, what God did in our heart, saving our life is somewhat insignificant. Here's what I see. And I haven't seen it this way in my entire life. This is my story right here. And for many of you in here, this is your story too. And my hope and prayer is that for some of you tonight, this will become your story. First, what happens? He has a recognition of what? The fear of God. I I told you guys before, my grandfather always said, Mark, your generation has forgotten about the fear of God. And he was right. We've lost the idea of reverence. We've lost the idea of what it means to sit in the presence of God. This man, by God's initiation, begins to fear God. Not just fear judgment and hell, but have this awe and respect of King Jesus that can only be done by God. Then what does he do? He says, we're getting what we deserve. He recognizes his guilt. In my story, that was my process. I began to fear God and come to this understanding of who God was. And the moment that light and darkness start to, start to have friction, what happens? Your guilt is revealed. Because they can't live in unison. Light and darkness cannot live together in unison. So as my fear of God and my awe of God began to increase, all of a sudden I started to recognize my own guilt. Scripture says that we're all sinners destined to death. This is what this guy realizes. We are on here punished justly. But what's the next line? What's the next line, friends? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished judgely, justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing, what? Wrong. 
fear of God. I am guilty. Christ is righteous. And because Christ is righteous, we see in this next verse, in verse 42, then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He fears God. He says, we're guilty. We are getting what we deserve. We deserve punishment. I deserve death. Christ is righteous. And because of that, Christ is king. This is my story. I was seven years old, sleeping in the same bed as Brienne, because I was afraid of the boogeyman. Literally. And I looked out at the stars. Many of you guys have heard my testimony. And I was like, hold on, my dad has pretty big biceps, but I'm pretty sure he didn't make those. And so I went and got my mom, and I was like, Mom, I, well, we've been going to church, we've been hearing this thing, Sunday school, blah, 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 tell me about this. And she said, Mark, God made those stars. And I've told people before that my testimony is boring because I grew up in the church. That night I gave my life to Christ. I didn't understand what sacrifice and obedience was until I was 12. And I've had the audacity to say, what a boring testimony. No! What a beautiful story of grace. God reached down, gave me a fear of Him, revealed to me that I was a wretched, depraved punk that I was deserving of death. And then he showed me the righteousness of Christ. And then, by his empowerment, I was able to call Christ King. That's my story, and for many of you, it's yours too. So, as we think about all this, the question that we wrestle with is, so what's a proper view of the cross then? And how does our story play into a proper view of the cross? A proper view of the cross that we've been learning and going through is first of all, that the cross is God's plan. It was God's plan from the beginning. Christ wasn't an afterthought. Some people say, well in the garden things went horribly wrong. No, in the garden, and this may sound weird to some of you, things go as planned. And that's tough. What do you mean things go as planned? I mean, if the garden doesn't happen, Jesus doesn't happen, and Jesus is the redemption, my friends. And so the first way that we must look back and see the cross as a symbol of hope is that it is God's plan. If you take anything away from all this, remember these three things. It's God's plan. Secondly, the cross, a proper view of the cross, is Christ's obedience. Christ obeys. Over and over and over. Obeys the will of the Father. Obeys God His Father. Becomes obedient to death, even to death on a cross, Scripture says. And thirdly, a proper view of the cross is seeing Christ's sacrifice. Taking the wrath of God. Becoming the Passover lamb for us. Did you notice in any of the three of those things that you and I aren't mentioned? That's been the problem of people's view of the symbol. Uh, They make the symbol. Remember I said that a symbol is like the representation of the story. And so people use the cross as a means like to first share their story. No, 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 no. A proper view of the cross says God's will, Christ's obedience, 
and Christ's sacrifice. And then what happens is people respond. In Scripture, we've already seen Jesus say, I will divide families. Mothers against husbands. Fathers against sons. I will divide families. Because when I initiate and you respond, which is what worship is, my friends, God initiates and we respond. When people respond, not all will respond to the cross in a way that sees Jesus as King clearly by the two criminals. And so when we respond, then it gives us this opportunity to then be a voice for the Gospel. To then say the cross is our symbol. The cross is Christianity because it was God's will. It was Christ's sacrifice. Obedience was Christ's sacrifice. And then I had the opportunity to respond to it. And what a beautiful story. I, I need to share this with you guys. I was in a youth choir named Impact. Don't make fun of me, please. Don't ever make fun of that. I think I, we came up with the name and the, the, the picture was uh, the hand of Christ with a crown of thorns and the nail was in his palm, which was incorrect, clearly, you know, I mean, and, um, you know, you know what I'm saying. And, um, and listen to this. I was 16 years old and third day. Have any of you guys heard of third day before? Third day? Yeah. They came out with a, with an album, a little ditty. And on the, on the album was a song named Thief. Have any of you guys heard the song? Awesome, this will relate to me. Perfect. It's a phenomenal song. Go, go home and iTunes it. Listen, it's a song all about the thief on the cross, the penitent thief. And I need to tell you, and I didn't think about this till yesterday. No and I were having a conversation. This song came out in a part of our youth choir. At the end, we made up this drama to the thief, to this song by Third Day. And some of you guys are laughing already, picturing me in some type of drama, you know. And then what would happen when I was 16, 17, and 18, and we did this like 60 or 70 times, what would happen is, is, is we would do this drama of the thief, and my character was this thief, the penitent, repentant thief. And Tim Edwards, for those of you guys who know Tim, he's our missionary in Thailand that we support. He was Jesus, right? And no, you know, he's not, you guys know what I'm saying. And, and after that would happen, then over and over and over as we traveled to these different churches, then as a young guy, a passionate guy, not much knowledge of the scripture, I would stand up and I would share the gospel with people. And I didn't think about this yesterday, but I, this whole song, this whole story, that, like I played that character and over and over and over I was experiencing the going through the emotions, I wept just about every time and, and then I, I would stand up and I would proclaim to people God is still doing this. He's still saving people. This can be your story. This can be your response to His initiation. I wasn't articulating it like that then. And so for me, to be honest, in this moment, it's very nostalgic. 50, 60, 70 times enacting this drama, and then presenting the gospel. 
And here we are 10 years later doing the exact same thing, but this time saying it's not about you, it's about Him. And it's about opening our hearts as God works in it to say, God, will you be King, resurrected Lord, sovereign, mighty God of my life? Will you do that? And what does Jesus do? He turns to the thief. Notice I haven't focused on this verse. And he says, today you will be with me in paradise. And so people often, when they're presenting the gospel, it's heaven or hell, right? They use this verse as a means to say, see, you come to Christ and you get heaven. Who wouldn't choose that? And here comes the car wreck. And here comes, you need you know, all these different dramatizations to open our heart to heaven or hell. It's not heaven or hell, my friends, even though that's the outcome. It's Christ or not. It's His Lord or something else is my Lord. And then when Christ becomes our Lord, like it did for the thief, Everything happens. I fear you. I deserve death. Remember me when you come in, when you get in your kingdom. You must be a king. Salvation comes to the cross. A thief gets saved. And that's my story. A thief, a robber, a blackened, desperate heart, even at seven. Well, Mark, you're just a young kid. My heart and my little girl is just as dead, my friends, as anyone else who doesn't know Jesus. But she's an innocent little girl. No, she's not innocent. She's guilty. She's guilty. And so is my heart. People often wrestle with, well, what's paradise here? Right? And people start getting caught up in, you know, the different types of heaven. I want to share briefly with you guys just to be able to teach this verse for you. The paradise here, okay, we see this word in the Greek three different times. The first is in Corinthians. Later it's in Revelation. And the same word is used to describe heaven in all three examples. For Paul, it was the third heaven. In Revelation chapter 2, it's to represent the tree of life, which in Revelation 14 and 22 is a clear reference to heaven. So in this case, paradise is Jesus' is saying And John Piper said it this way, that this thief goes to the home of God. That Christ goes to the home of God. So there's several different theories. This is a debated passage. But when you sit back and look at the phrasing, at some point in this day, Christ and this thief show up in the home of God. And so now what? There's a piece of paper under your, under your seat. If you guys can grab that in your pen, that'd be great. I sit back and I... Uh, there's many days when Jason and Jeff and I, Noah and the, Jeremy and the boys, where we're praying for God to save St. Charles. For him just to do something miraculous. 
Can I tell you guys something right now? Each and every, guy, each and every one of you. The reason why we planted a church was not to have cool worship services with neat stained glass crosses. The reason why God called us to set up chairs and do bulletins and have lot families and do second Saturdays. The reason and the passion behind all of this is that Christ would use this to seek and to save what was lost. I don't want any of you to get confused by that. Matthias's lot isn't about the glitz and the glamour. It's about sitting back and saying, God, would you save some more? And God, would you give us the grace to disciple him properly? God, would you save some more? Just, God, just one more, just two. God, just three. God, will you turn this city upside down? Can I ask you, is that your desire? Church, is that your heart? Is your passion that God would do that work in and around us? Or is your passion that you would just reap the benefits of having phenomenal relationships and being in a cool small group and having a worship leader that sings neat songs? I believe that God is still saving. I believe that the Word is still penetrating. I believe that the Spirit is alive. I believe that the thief story is my story and many of yours and may become some of yours right now. I believe that this story of God's grace is the story that needs to be spread to this community and beyond. We must not cower in the corner anymore. We must become, by the empowerment of the Spirit, a voice for the Gospel. The true Christ grabbing our heart and revealing to the world His grace that He can save a wretched punk just like me. But we need to pray for that.